0: As we record this Bar Crow Radio podcast conversation, we are in the midst of two social crises, the coronavirus pandemic and social unrest caused by white racism. Added to that, our government has no coherent, effective policy to help us move forward. These social and health upheavals have impacted our children's education. And for this Bar Crow Radio episode, we are talking with two educational leaders Whose organizations are working to establish equity and justice for poor brown and black children. Class Size Matters, an alliance for quality education.
1: BCR conversations continue over Zoom as we yearn for the day when we will be talking to interesting people at our favorite neighborhood bars. So, with that, here we go.
0: Lainey Hameson was a public school parent who saw a basic problem with the New York City system and founded, and is the executive director of, Class Size Matters, a local nonprofit organization that advocates nationally for smaller classrooms. Amongst many prestigious awards, Ms. Hampson received the John Dewey Award from the United Federation of Teachers in 2007, was named one of New York City's family heroes by New York City Family Magazine in 2009 and was honored as an extraordinary advocate for our children by Advocates for Justice in 2018. She has appeared on CNN, Fox News, WNBC News, NPR, Al Jazeera, Democracy Now!, and others. She has written widely in national op-ed pages, and in 2015 was named in the top 10 of influential people in education technology by Tech and Learning Magazine.
1: Jasmine Gripper is the newly appointed executive director of the statewide advocacy group Alliance for Quality Education, or AQE. She shifted from educator to advocacy work after realizing that her students were harmed by unequal education policies. In 2012, Jasmine worked as a field organizer for Obama's re-election and the following year joined AQE. Jasmine has been named one of the city and state's 40 under 40 rising stars and in 2020 made the Education Power 100 list. Jasmine is dedicated to dismantling systemic racism in education and to creating well-resourced, high-quality, culturally relevant community schools in every black and brown
0: neighborhood. So, uh, how are you two handling social distancing in your private lives and in the work you do? Jasmine?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm doing okay. I find ways to cope. Um, my best coping mechanism is going outside um, and sitting in the backyard and getting some sun, and that has been my saving grace this whole time.
0: Nice to have a backyard. We we have our backyard is Riverside Drive, so
2: Riverside uh, Park. R-
0: Riverside Park, right? Delaney, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing okay. I wear a mask outside very religiously. Um, I live in a very crowded area of New York City, so. It's a little bit difficult to keep far enough from people all the time.
0: Where are you in the city?
3: I'm in Greenwich Village, right near Washington Square Park. And it seems like there's something, you know, protest or or concert or something happening in the park all the time. So um, I walk around the edges of the park and then I take walks in different directions. But I'm wearing my mask the whole time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
3: I'm planning to get away probably friday for a while
0: that'd we're be
1: nice city
3: finally
0: good show. yeah we've been uh and alina and us we've been able to get out of the city which has been quite um quite helpful just right. a little bit right
1: today is our 40th wedding anniversary
3: right. congrats
1: and,
0: and <laughs> she, and she congratulations just, thank you
3: are you guys in new york city yes yeah uh, we're,
0: we're on the upper west side
3: so oh, you can go out to school. dinner tonight for the first oh. time since uh, March 15th or
0: something. I'm not, we're he not won't. going. He won't, won't
3: do go. it. <laughs> no? He will not do no. it. And for your, 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 your celebration, your...
0: Well, we'll order out.
1: Yeah, we'll have fun. We'll, we'll have fun. We'll order everything yeah. that I like.
0: We'll get everything that, that she likes. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not ready yet to do that. I mean, am I crazy? You know? I
3: don't know. We did it on Friday night. There were a couple of restaurants that... Sort of jumped the gun in the village,
1: yeah,
0: and
3: we just missed it so much that we had we ate out Friday night, well, but you I'm... sit outside right yeah there's right. no inside seating and're you know? yeah
1: yeah, I thought, yeah, and you're far apart from was it difficult to get in, did you have to wait in line?
3: no 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 we were a little bit early and it was a new restaurant that we hadn't tried so but i imagine that you know it depends where you go it might be difficult to get right. a table right? right
0: yeah i sort of yeah. want i sort of want to let it settle down and make people kind of get used to it alina was shaking her head <laughs> she's not ready to go out and, and go carousing. no
1: not yet i'm with you not
2: yet
0: yeah I mean, we're bar crawl radio, and we usually do these kinds of conversations at bars.
2: Are you saying I should have brought a drink to this interview? You can. You can you still could. go get one.
0: I uh, I brought iced tea, so, which is not a bar crawl tradi- <laughs> tradition, but there, there you go. But Becky has a question for you. Rebecca has a question for you.
1: Thank you. Okay, so let's explore the goals of your organizations. Jasmine, A Q E, the Alliance for quality education works to empower poor black and brown students to get the education they deserve. You want to establish education justice in New York City schools. What is education justice?
2: Yeah, so AQE is a statewide organization focused on education justice and racial justice in education. And what we mean by that is that all children, regardless of their zip code, regardless of their economic status or their parents' education, that they have access to high quality public schools in their neighborhood, that they have access to to the resources they need to succeed. Um, Too often people focus on the um, achievement gap when the reality is there's a huge opportunity gap Uh, Children are not given the same opportunities, Um, and until we close the opportunity gap, we will never make a dent in the achievement gap. And so we want to make sure that all children have access to the opportunities and resources they need in order to reach their full potential.
0: Could you give an example of an opportunity gap?
2: Sure. Um, Say you're trying to go to college and you you fill out a college application. Um, Some children have access to AP courses. Um, and a plethora of them. And then other kids have access to none in their schools. Um, And we see this all across New York state in black, brown and low income communities. Students have fewer access to resources and opportunities. Uh, That even shows up in sports programs. Do you have access to winter sports and summer sports? Do you have access to advanced placement courses? Do you have access to science labs? Um, Even the bare minimum, uh, we've met students who needed to do a chemistry regents for New York State, um, but could not do any lab experiments because the school didn't have the resources to pay for the lab experiments. Um, and this is a huge opportunity gap because between kids who have hands-on experience and kids who have, who could only do paper labs.
1: And, and then, also, doesn't it extend to the, 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 the tools that they need at home, like computers and printers? and
0: Internet access?
2: We definitely see this exaggerated in this moment of remote or online learning. We know that the wealthy school districts, the Scarsdales of New York, were able to ramp up to 100% of students on remote learning in a matter of one to two weeks. New York City and other high-need districts across the state are struggling to do that. If you look at Rochester, New York, they didn't even bother to give uh, computers or laptops uh, or iPads to anyone in elementary school because they didn't have the resources to do so. Only high school and middle school students were able to get a, a, a device through the school district. Um, and so we see all across the state, especially in this a time of social distancing, uh, that high needs students are being left behind and they are not getting access to what they need in order to do educational work uh, during the shutdown. And
1: studies have shown that it absolutely affects the um, their academic outcome.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, we are really nervous about what this means in terms of learning loss, right? We all know about summer learning loss. Uh, You pack on the two or three months of of now and the uncertainties of September 2020, um, we're dealing with a huge deficit. And then the other possibility is that the city is considering cutting education by about 800 million in this budget. So we're just gonna devastate children on top of what's already been the educational neglect that we've been doing to children. And so it is our duty to fight for children and to make sure that they have what they need um, and to make sure that the budget is just, to make sure the policies are just and to make sure kids have the resources and the families have the resources and tools so that their children can thrive.
0: And just to be clear, we're talking about the black and brown poor student versus the general white student population.
2: Yeah, and you see it in New York City, right? You, you have a city that is super diverse. The public school system is mostly children of color, but if you find a school in New York City where the majority of children are white uh, and mostly middle class, you find more resources. Um, that's often because those schools can fundraise through the PTAs. Um, and we've seen in New York City, PTAs fundraise in the millions of dollars. And we've seen public schools struggle with fundraise to the hundreds of dollars. Mm. Um, and so we see this gap just continues to persist within our public school system across the spectrum by race and social economic class.
0: Yeah, Lainey, let's uh, ask you, uh, in 2000 you started Class Size Matters. It's become very big and very important in New York City education. I
3: don't know about that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. From my
0: reading of it, it seems very big and very. It kind of has tentacles out out in a lot of different places. Tell us a story. How, how did how did class size matters begin?
3: So it began when my daughter was in first grade and she had a great teacher, uh, but she was in a class of twenty nine, and I was volunteering in the classroom helping her teacher pack up before uh, one of the vacations. And she confided in me that she prayed for days when one or two kids were absent because it made all the difference in the world to how well she could teach. And I was really shocked and surprised because she was really one of the best teachers in the school and had complete classroom control. Um, and these were quite well behaved kids and they did most of everything they were told. And yet still she experienced this incredible um loss of being able to really teach because the class size was too big and so I started doing a little bit of research in my own free time to look at what the what what the actual research was on class size and also what class sizes were in New York City compared to the rest of the state and I discovered two things which I hadn't known which was the research was very strong that class size makes a difference in terms of a whole um, bunch of student outcomes, including test scores, grades, um, disciplinary rates, uh, teacher attrition, student engagement, really anything you can observe or measure is better in a small class. And I also learned that New York City had by far the largest class sizes in the state. And I was kind of appalled because I thought up to that time that we were doing our best in terms of educating kids in New York City public schools and that we had a lot of immigrant kids and a lot of poor kids and we were doing everything that we knew how to do to improve education Um, but then I realized very clearly that we weren't doing the one thing that would make the most difference and that was lowering class size.
0: Is, is this class size problem prevalent in all the schools and both the schools that with, with needs children as well as schools with, you know?
3: Class sizes are very uneven across the city. And what it depends on most of all is usually how overcrowded the school is. There's a strong correlation between school overcrowding and class size. So that um, there are some areas in which they're mostly white and Asian kids where the, you will have very large classes. And there's some kids uh, areas where there are a lot of immigrant kids where there are a lot uh, very high class sizes because those are where enrollment has been growing most. But you can get overcrowded schools in every part of the city with every kind of demographic background that you can imagine in every community it's just extremely uneven from one school to the next
0: right and jasmine you you would see the same thing in the schools that you've been uh, representing
2: class size is not just a problem in new york city it's a problem throughout new york state Um, in terms of students attending classes with a size too big, we know that students need the one-on-one individualized attention. Um, We know the students who need it the most are students who are coming from poverty, students who are English language learners, uh, students with disabilities. Um, And we often find that um, even students who have IEPs, the individual education plan, uh, that requires them to have a smaller uh, class size, that oftentimes the schools are out of compliance. Um, and they apply for waivers uh, because they cannot meet the needs of students. Either they don't have enough space or they don't have enough educators uh, to meet the demands of what um, and the academic needs of students. And so they disregard those things, even though it's actually crucial to the child's development.
0: Is this part of your agenda, uh, A- AQE?
2: Yes, we've been a part of a lawsuit with Class Size Matter, um, suing the city and the state at different times to to make sure that we invest in smaller class sizes uh, to ensure educational rights of students.
1: Our children went to public schools. Our daughter, though, uh, we chose for her uh, Urban Academy, and it's a high school that has very small class size, and um, there are educators from 20 years ago who really that started the school um, really believed in the small class size as being so important. And I think the biggest class she had when she was in high school was maybe 13 students.
3: And that was a big class. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's a that's great very, school. highly unusual. They gave up textbooks. Yeah, I doubt they're that small now in that school, but they may be smaller than the average high school um, class size. One of the other things that's really important about the research on class size is though all even though all kids benefit from smaller classes those who benefit the most tend to be disadvantaged kids kids from low-income families kids of color who see twice the benefit of smaller classes than average white middle class kids and so that's why it's particularly distressing and unfair that in new york city which we're you know we have um, a majority of, of kids of color We do have, you know, on average, very, very large classes and much larger classes than kids in more middle class, wealthier suburbs.
0: Is there any way that we could talk briefly about why that difference is so large between poor children, children of color and and other children when it comes to class size?
3: You mean why the benefits are so much greater? Why they accrue
0: so much greater, right?
3: Well, the, the theory behind that is that white middle-class kids who have all the advantages of, 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 of two parents and lots of books at home and lots of support at home, including, you know, sometimes tutoring if they're falling behind, um, they come to school with more advantages. And as they move through school, they continue to have more advantages because of their home environment. Whereas poorer kids and Kids of color may have, uh, you know, a one parent house, households or two parents who are working full time or in the evening, um, fewer resources, fewer books at home, certainly less access to tutors, et cetera. And so the one on one relationship that they find at school is therefore that much more important because they're not getting um, that kind of relationship um, in other places. And what's interesting is online learning is exactly the opposite as from small classes. So the digital divide is not just that disadvantaged kids tend to have less access to the internet and fewer less access to devices, but they also do far worse when they're relegated to online learning than um, your average middle-class kid because they need that one-on-one in-person engagement to keep them focused on, on, on their work and to keep them really excited about what they're doing. The the building of a relationship with the teacher and their fellow classmates in a real life classroom is much more important.
0: Yeah. Lainey, so, when I was um, doing my research for this conversation, I noted that you are doing a lot of things that seem to be different, but all relate to class size, um, you deal with the Department of Education teacher contracts, school leadership teams, which the teachers and the parents get together, uh, the city's comprehensive education plan, uh, student privacy. Uh, very interesting to read about the Gates in Bloom initiative, which which you were important in taking down. Um, and we certainly yeah. do a whole program on that uh, and then standardized testing. So all of these things are related. I think you've, you were addressing that. But all of these issues that you have touched and are being effective on, they all relate to class size.
3: Well, they all relate to the quality of education. And what we try to focus on, we sort of move into where there's a vacuum of participation in, in the city and elsewhere, is resources, how resources are are spent in New York City. And there's a lot of resources that we think are wasted on programs that don't work and aren't as effective as if they, you know, spent the money on lowering class size. So, in order to make up for the deficit of learning, what they, what we've done in New York City over many years, and even at the state level, is put too much emphasis on testing, as though if you really make sure that everybody, you know, works as hard as possible on a test and that their futures are defined by how they do on that test whether it's teachers or students, that's somehow gonna work to improve student outcomes and student learning. And of course it doesn't at all, it just further deforms what's happening in the classroom and and further diminishes real learning. So we do do some work on testing the student privacy issue. I sort of got involved in because I I found out that there was going to be this super corporation funded with $100 million of the Gates Foundation funds that was gonna take all the personal student data um, from nine states and districts including new york and i was just so personally offended by that i just couldn't believe that that was legal and so we actually launched a lawsuit about that but the lawsuit didn't work but we got the state to change the law to ban in gloom. and the other states and districts that were participating also parents were very very upset and got their their states to move out voluntarily and in bloom collapse. But in the process, we learned that this federal laws, which we thought were strong um, against um, handing out personal student data to corporations and other third parties without parent knowledge or consent had been weakened over the years to encourage this sort of thing. So in bloom was only the tip of the iceberg, but it does relate to class size in that there's such a huge push towards the privatization of education through ed tech and through remote learning. And we're really suffering from it right now during the pandemic. And in the process, a lot of student data is being handed off without any care as to how it's being used or who it's being shared with and for what purposes. And so it it does all relate.
0: Yeah, it's all related, it's all complex. One thing kind of feeds into the other.
1: no one would disagree with the sensible goals of your organization, so. But if we were to look at this big social picture What's stopping us from moving forward? What are the large structural and social blocks to these laudable goals for our New York City schools? Maybe Jasmine. Money.
0: Money. (laughs) Jasmine?
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. Uh, The reality is a systemic racism in education and that we as a city and we as a state refuse to invest in the the programs that work uh, on black, brown and low income children. Um, And we consistently have to fight with our elected officials around getting the resources and the dollars to our schools, and they constantly make excuses, and so For example, New York state owes our public schools statewide about $4 billion. We are underfunding our public schools by $4 billion according to the state's own school funding formula. And yet we have a governor who likes to say money doesn't matter in education, or it's not about the dollars, even though his kids went to one of the most expensive private schools and the most expensive public schools or well-funded public schools in New York state. Uh, Money does matter in education. And we see that those who have the access to the most money and most resources the best outcomes, um, and so now we're here at the city level again and we're looking at the city budget and the mayor is like well we have a budget deficit let's cut 800 million dollars from education and let's leave the nypd these are literally about priorities and where do we choose to put our resources in and too often we spend a lot of money on incarceration and criminalization and so at one point we were paying over a hundred thousand per inmate to, or per person to stay at rikers island there's a no point. How much point, did you say? Uh, over a hundred thousand per person. Per, per year. Bed. Yes. Oh. Uh, and at no point in a kid's life, from um, baby to higher ed, do we ever invest that much per child? Uh, even though if we did invest that much, we would have huge returns. Um, and so we have the wrong priorities. Um, and disrupting or dismantling this system of mass incarceration, of over policing. Um, it's something that is, is hard to do, but we are in the process of doing because it's very important that we invest in the things that are right and that we know children in their youngest ages from birth to five years old is a really important, crucial time for children in their development. We know that K to 12 is absolutely important that kids go to well-resourced schools. And we know that higher ed should be free and available to all. Um, and getting all of that done is a matter of spending the right dollars on our children.
0: Yep. I'm a professor in the CUNY system. And I see it's being imploded with uh, the excuse that uh, there, there is no money to hire adjuncts or to hire more full time professors. So, I mean, it's going on at, at all levels. But this idea of funding our schools by taking the money out of incarceration and out of the police um, is that doable? Is it, can it be done? Or is it just an idea so that is. a readjustment,
2: it sounds Just like. being
0: spaghetti thrown against the wall.
2: No, it's, it's rethinking priorities. It can be done uh, and it's absolutely realistic. And it's a process, right? I think what we're, we're not trying to say we want to now have this huge unemployment problem <laughs> because we're gonna lay off everyone in the police department, but there's a way we can transition resources over um, and better use those resources uh, to invest in our children. And, and there's a process of defunding the police and reinvesting in communities. Um, and we wanna begin that process now. The demand is for New York City to cut $1 billion from the NYPD budget and invest it in education and youth services. Um, This is absolutely important. Uh, We cannot in this moment make this massive cut to education because the effects are lasting. Uh, Our children, I like to say, kids only get one chance to be a first grader. Either we get it right or we don't. Uh, And when we don't get it right, that is lasting consequences for that child's development and their future. And so it's absolutely important that we do everything we possibly can to set kids up on the right path in order for them to succeed. Um, And that means giving them the resources, and that means reallocating resources. I think there's a ton of things that can be shifted in the state and city budget in order to fully fund and adequately fund our schools. You speak
1: of the first grader. As an educator, I see those first, uh, second, third years in school as foundational. They need a good education there so that everything else can be built upon it.
0: We're going to be going back to the classroom, I guess, in the fall. There's going to be practicing social distancing. It's hard to say what what's going to happen in the, in the classroom, the wearing of masks. I myself am a little worried about going back to the classroom. Uh, I was told that we're going to be back in the classroom at John Jay, but it still seems up in the air. Class size matters seems to be an important aspect of this. Um, keeping fewer students in the classroom is also going to keep us healthier. Yes?
3: Yeah, I think that there's no doubt there's going to be smaller classes next year, not in the way I would have ever hoped or envisioned for it, though.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, the, D- the Department of Education is talking about limiting class size to eight, which would be fantastic. Wow. Right. If you had classes five days a week, every week in a month, uh, a class size of eight, I think it would propel kids towards greatness in all sorts of ways. But what's going to happen instead is they're going to get those days of eight kids in the class, maybe one day a week, or two days a week, or every other week or every third week. And it's going to be um, combined with online learning. And so I have no predictions as to what the outcomes of that system is going to be. What's really unfortunate is that we have very, a, a lot of very overcrowded schools in New York City. So Uh, More than half a million kids are in overcrowded schools according to the DOE's own metrics, which underestimate the actual amount of overcrowding and have actually very large class size standards. What I think they may end up doing, which is also very unfortunate, is leaving it up to schools to try to design their own programs, um, given that limitation of eight kids per classroom. And they'll be dividing up a lot of gyms and libraries and ways that won't be ideal either. What's really, really sad is we've gone so many years in not reducing class sizes. And in fact, class sizes went up sharply, especially in the early grades, starting with the last recession in 2007, 2008, uh, when actually the city was legally mandated to be reducing class size and never did. And that was one of the reasons for our lawsuit. And the state never gave us all the money that they were supposed to give us either, but the city cut back and the state cut back. And now we seem to be going into another recession where class sizes actually, when we all actually go back to school, we'll start going up again because we won't, our schools won't have the budget to keep the teachers that they need. We have a campaign now saying to the city we want you to spend a big chunk of that money where uh, we hope you'll be cutting a billion dollars off of police and actually the city council is united in negotiating for a billion dollars cut from police to more staffing in schools and more health and safety measures in schools which um, recently the the national association of superintendents estimated would cost up to 500 dollars per student which considering that we have a million students in New York, that alone will cost us $500 million. So, I mean, it's really, uh, we're in a tremendous crisis here, both economically, educationally, and with uh, a pandemic upon us. And it's very hard to see how everything's going to work or fit together. But I think it's almost everybody who's looked at this issue in a serious way realizes that our schools are gonna need more staffing next year, more health and safety protections and more money um, instead of budget cuts. And we, I just wanted to mention also, we did uh, actually campaign for the busing contracts to be cut this year because we weren't using busing anymore. And that was a controversial proposal because people don't wanna see bus drivers left, um, laid off. But I pointed out that they could go on unemployment and actually the Cares Act allowed for unemployment for some workers that was more than what they were getting paid. So so the DOE is going to be actually listen to us for once or listen to this city controller that wrote a letter um, saying the same thing. And so we're saving somewhere between 600 and $800 million for that alone, which we're pushing should go right into schools and really would would prevent the need for any cuts to schools at all next year.
0: Did you say just for busing? <laughs> just the
3: busing part? Just for the busing that they stopped using on March 15th, and they're not using this summer because there's not going to be in-person summer school alone, save somewhere between $600 and $800 million. But when the busing... No, yeah. so he wasn't going to wasn't uh, argue that they... They didn't have the legal right to stop those contracts, which was total BS, as this uh, city controller pointed out. There's something in those contracts called force majeure, which means in any case of emergency, and it specifically includes epidemics. You don't have to pay. Uh, you don't have to uh, go through with those contracts, and that alone, which we or the controller and us convinced the DOE not to renew those contracts, because it was on the agenda for the April uh, PEP to approve, um, will save somewhere between $600 and $800 million alone.
1: But at one point, the busing will resume, right?
3: Yes, the buses will have to resume in September. And, and what
1: about the fact that you can't have as many students on the buses? How does how does that
3: figure
0: out
1: That's in?
3: another issue which they're going to have to resolve somehow. These are
0: really uncharted exactly. waters. I mean, you're talking about uh, curriculum changes that we've never faced before. Eight A- Eight students in a classroom just going once a week or once every two weeks, then hybrid. I mean, this is a huge change.
2: This is a huge change. And I think our biggest concern is the educational neglect under the guise of safety. What we don't want to happen is that we just start ignoring the educational needs of students and say, well, because we wanna keep them safe, we have to do this. Um, And so in order for any of these measures to be successful, they have to be coupled with the right amount of support. Um, Like Lainey said earlier, children, especially low income children, black and brown children who are coming from adverse conditions, who are coming from poverty and trauma, are not learning well when they're just sitting in front of a computer. Um, when New York City even experimented with this, I think through Facebook, um, the Facebook founder Zuckerberg uh, started a high school where they did all this online learning, the kids revolted and they had a walkout. They were like, this is not real learning. Wow. Um, and so we know what works is the relations with kids, right? Have that dealt and children having relations our relationship and feeling supported and loved. And how do we replicate that if we cannot be in the classroom every day? How do we make sure all kids are being checked on? How do we make sure kids are, are learning and actual learning? I think what's real now is that kids are, and everyone's complaining that they're not learning. They're just doing busy work. Um, and a whole school year, academic year, busy work is not okay. So what does academic learning look like? How do you even do remote learning or online learning for first and second graders? Like, and what do you do when parents go back to work, right? Part of the shutdown, the reason why it worked uh, in any essence was that everything was closed. So more adults were home to watch children. So when adults are forced to go back to work because their jobs are resuming in person, what does that mean when kids have to be home and they're young children? Who's caring for the children um and so there are a lot of ifs uh that we have to figure out voe has a task force and we are a part of it and they are not doing a good job <laughs> at tackling these really hard questions or even relying on experts or parents to um, fill in the gaps to say how do we see some solutions to these problems um, and so we're really nervous that the city is only being responsive to one thing which is that they really care about health in terms of how are we keeping people apart and reduce infections Uh, We have the teachers union who's only cared about their contracts and what their workers can or can't do. And then no one's really advocating for parent and student voice at the table or the ones who are at the table like us who are doing that are not being listened to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're really struggling with DOE and uh, really getting them to produce a comprehensive plan that really meets the needs of 1.1 million public school children in New York City. And we understand that this is not an easy task which is why we all want need to do it together. But they really have to tackle these really hard questions around where do children go? Where will they be all day? Where are their parents? What happens when you have, um, you're a parent and you have multiple children and a lot of them are young and one kid is on one schedule and the other kid is on another schedule? Like this is really complicated times. And so this is not a simple, easy fix of just, you know, we're going to throw kids in front of a computer and it's going to be all right. Uh, That is not true and that is not okay. And so we really need to be advocating uh, at every level from the state education department to the state legislature to New York City um, to really hear and invite the voice of parents and students to the table so that we can really hash out a comprehensive solutions to all of these problems.
0: You're asking, it seems to me, all the right questions, And there's a lot of questions there, and they all intersect with each other. But I don't see you confident that there's a process that we're going to get to practical, workable answers in the time we have between now and September.
2: I don't trust the DOE to create the answers by themselves. I think with advocacy, we can push them in the right direction. Um, And I actually think the State Education Department has a really good process that they're doing right now to reimagine education and figure out how to meet the needs of students. And I'm hoping that the State Education Department will really put do some hard guidelines for the city, and other school districts to implement. AQE is also right now, we're doing a series of visioning sessions with parents and students all around New York State uh, to hear what they want to do with their schools and what they want education to look like. uh, What is the ideal role thing for them to have to exist? And we're gonna put out our recommendations um, in early July to make sure we're at the table influencing that. And so no, I don't think DOE will get it right all by themselves, and nor do I think anyone could get it right all by yourselves. I think it takes, Bringing great, brilliant minds together, it takes talking to all of the stakeholders in order to get this right, because we understand we're in uncharted territory.
0: And we also need the money to pay for whatever ideas come Mm -hmm. up. Are there any models out there that would be helpful in coming up with a solution that will work in September?
2: You know, keep in mind, New York City is the largest school district in the nation. (laughs) It's really hard for them to replicate some of the things that other districts do. Uh, But we're looking at what California is doing. We're looking at what other countries are doing that have opened up um, to provide us some guidance. I think the other thing that we're trying to push the city to do is to really think uh, bigger and bolder than ever before. It's not enough just to say we're going to divvy up kids into smaller class sizes by them coming to school uh, for shorter windows. Uh, How could we as uh, New York City take advantage of all the space in our city? We have museums, we have libraries, we have recreation centers, we have parks and beaches. How do we now incorporate all of these buildings to be learning sites for our children to go to and learn and we have enriched activities um, as part of their learning experience? And so what we're really trying to push the city to do is to think creatively about solutions um, that enrich, enrich children's education this time and not just diminishes it.
0: May I say I don't have much faith in our political leaders in coming up with those creative answers. I have faith in you too. but not the <laughs> so leaders. We
3: had we had a, a conference, a uh, two-hour conference on Saturday. First, we put an online survey that got almost 400 responses in nine days from parents, teachers, uh, CBO, representatives, etc., with lots of detailed ideas, concerns, and questions and then we had a two hour conference on Saturday with a hundred people participating in 10 breakout groups and we're putting together the ideas and the recommendations right now um, from the survey and from the breakout groups, I hope to have it finished by the end of the week. I am one of the people appointed to the region's advisory board that's meeting on Wednesday. Um, and I hope that that is a better process and we will be We provided some of the ideas from our breakout groups and our surveys to uh, three of the Board of Regents who came at the end of our meeting, as well as two representatives from DOE and uh, several elected officials, legislators, and city council members. We didn't have anyone from the mayor's office, even though we invited the mayor to come. I agree with Jasmine that the DOE doesn't seem to know what it's doing. Um, There are other districts which have come up with plans a lot quicker um, than DOE, but I wouldn't mind that so much if I felt like that they were really listening to parents and teachers and and advocates on these issues. And I just don't see the process really happening. So I don't know what what's happening within the bowels of the DOE, but right now I'm a little worried that what they're going to do is just leave it up to every school to sort of decide what they wanna do given the requirements of eight kids in a classroom and that's it. And, and not give them any more money, not give them any more support, not give them any more guidance, not give them any more ideas. And so kids will only be in school like one day a week or two days a week. And then all the problems that flow from that both educationally and as Jasmine was saying, what are their parents gonna do during those times when they're at home? But one of the ideas that we did come up with that several people seem to like a lot. And I'm interested to see what Jasmine has to say about this as well. Is that this is a time that this the DOE should be really harnessing all the possible um, staff and volunteers from all these CBOs that exist, like Literacy Inc. and, and reading groups and all the rest and in the after-school groups. And some of them are partially funded by privately and some of them uh, get federal funds as well as city funds use those people, those adults as well to spend time with kids, either doing projects or going on field trips or doing one-on-one tutoring with them at the times when they're not in class. And that could be done remotely. It could be done, as you say, in libraries and community centers, on beaches, in parks, in, or even at the kids' homes, because those kids are going to need more involvement, more feedback, more support. Um, more more learning um, than they're going to get at school either in the classroom or, or remotely.
1: That sounds like a great idea, and but I'm wondering what are some of the other ideas you're hearing? Like studying other countries or other states? Have you, as you've said, some of the ideas that came from this meeting that you were talking about? What are some What are some of the ideas about how this could work?
2: Yeah, I know one of the things that our parents brought up is that they want live instruction. Um, A lot of the remote learning so far is that there's online assignments that kids are doing, um, but they're not getting a lot of live teaching and actual teaching. And so I know one of the ideas that our folks came up with is that they really want live instruction to happen. Um, on a regular basis, and that kids are interacting with an adult, and they're doing new material. I think other ideas that came up is that, you know, parents want, again, they want to reduce class sizes. They were like, we want to meet, we can meet anywhere, (laughs) as long as it's a a smaller setting. Um, We heard early childhood providers really complain about the idea of like, one kid, little kids do not keep masks on. Uh, Asking little kids not to play with each other is just, like, impossible. Um, And so how do we kind of keep, like, homogeneous groupings of kids so that kids can interact in a playful way and play together um, and not have to worry about, uh, you know, social distancing so much all day long? Because it's just impossible. Kids want to play, and we have to allow them to to do so in a way that's safe. Um, And so, like, how do we really encourage or make space for that? And so there are a lot of things we're exploring through our visioning sessions um, and really excited to hear about what happened in Laney session um, and to pull together a robust set of uh, plans and agendas that um, we can push for at the city and state level.
0: Yeah. I wish there was more reporting on this. I mean, generally um, about what, you know, where we're going and that there are people like you and organizations like you working to find answers that are effective and practical. And hopefully the,
1: the state will listen.
0: Yeah.
3: So we—I I actually talked to someone who works at one of the rec centers in New York City, which are these uh, schools that are opened up for frontline workers' kids. And she works in a, uh, a pre-K class for for kids who are uh, three and four. And they have, I think, eight kids in the class, three adults, which is great. And she said they do wear their masks when they play outside or in the gym. They they get to play three times a day. And she was surprised, but they're very agreeable to wearing the masks. But then, when they come back in the classroom, they don't. They tend not to wear the masks so much, and they're not. The the adults are not um, very strict about that, but they do manage to keep them somewhat apart, except when they're like at the water table or the sand table or whatever. But another thing that um, the health and safety breakout groups talked about a lot was regular testing. I think right now in New York City, we do have really um, pretty pretty good um, testing capability. And I think that something that everybody wants is regular uh, testing, COVID testing for kids and adults. And I don't know how much that would cost and I don't know exactly how it would be done, but that's something that people think is doable as well as of course, taking temperature every day, which is something that they do um, in schools abroad. Uh, they're doing the temperature uh, check at the co- at the rec centers i was very surprised to hear there's no testing of adults or kids at the rec centers and in fact rec center that, that this person worked at the supervisor actually got sick with covid and came back within a week which is not good. great um, but none of them were asked to test which i found incredibly um, irresponsible but um, those are some of the things that we've been talking about um, on the survey and in the breakout groups, regular testing, um, mask wearing, um, and and some of the other things to uh, temperature taking, to try to ensure that kids and adults stay as healthy as possible.
0: They all sound like great ideas. They have to make it work.
3: It's yeah. going to cost money. Thermometers cost money. Masks cost money. Tests. PPE costs money. More nurses cost money. People say that, you know, not every school has a nurse. Well, every school is going to need at least one nurse, if not more. And it's hard to see how they're going to get along with just one nurse.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Linda, you're on the steering committee of the New York State Allies for Education, a coalition of groups that led the exam opt-out movement across New York State. What's the problem with standardized testing in our
3: schools? Tests are terrible. The state tests are completely unreliable, and, and, and every teacher who looks at them says they're so badly designed, first of all. Second of all, there are too many high stakes attached to those tests still. So they took away most of the stakes for the teachers, even though there was a big push a few years back that the governor led to make sure that every teacher was rated on the basis of student test scores. And that was eventually um, realized it was ridiculous. And so they've they've done away with that. Um, But still in New York City, a lot depends on kids' test scores. So kids are getting um, admitted into schools, middle schools and high schools, on the basis of these test scores, which are not only unreliable, but they are also very um, discriminatory in terms of kids of color, uh, kids who are special needs, immigrant kids do worse on these tests. So you need to, number one, take away all high-stakes tests. Uh, in other words, you take take away the stakes that come with the test. And then you need to design better tests that are more reliable and more reasonable. And 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 one of the things that came up in our breakout groups that there were quite a few teachers in there is that for next year we really need to change the standards because teachers are still being taught um, and trained according to these things called the Common Core standards, which are really stupid anyway and and unre- and and and, and pushed teaching into a very restrictive sort of uh, way of thinking, which is not creative and which is not engaging for kids, but they're uh, associated very strictly with different grade levels. And given that we have suffered this year with the loss of learning because of the COVID crisis, we're going to we'll strongly recommend that the state adjust those standards, not downwards, but to more reasonable levels And that the tests have to be changed as well, um, if they're going to be given at all. One sort of silver lining out of all this crisis and all of the terrible things that have happened this year is that the state tests were called off. And it looks like um, it's been really hard for the College Board to give the SATs and the ACTs. So pretty much all colleges are no longer demanding SATs or ACTs for next year. And a lot of states are realizing that they don't need these tests and they don't serve any good purpose at all. So um, we'll see what happens with that, but it's really sort of, the, the regions were already, the Board of Regents were already in a process where they were reconsidering the use of our high stakes high school exams. We're one of the few states in the country that require kids to pass specific tests to graduate from high school. And that's shown not to have any good effects in terms of student outcomes or learning, but to essentially relegate more kids um, to be dropouts and eventually incarcerated. So the regents, we finally have a more progressive group of of regents who are starting to move away from those uh, regents um, exams. And they were going to come up with alternative ways of graduating from high school. And they were having really good public sessions and, and all that. And that was cut short by the COVID pandemic. But we're hoping that they we can keep on pushing them in the right direction to get rid of our region's um, high school exit exams, which are really ridiculous. Jasmine, what about
1: Pearson yeah. Pearson Publishing? I know they receive a lot of money to create these tests, but are they reliable? Are they fair to our students?
2: No, they're absolutely unreliable. Uh, piercings, I think we've tried to really call out industries that are just simply trying to make money off the backs of public education and aren't actually providing a benefit. And Pearson's is one of those companies that's for profit. Uh, They have their hand in curriculum design, they have their hand in testing um, and yet they're not shown to be thorough or effective. And so, um, no, their tests aren't good. They, You know, we use the Pearson test, I think, is one of the tests used for the specialized high school entrance exam in New York and City. For
3: gift, and for the gifted exam, uh, <laughs> which is the this most ridiculous exam of all, to test four year olds as to whether they're gifted or not. And nobody believes that these are credible exams, and they mean anything at all.
1: So if we have to continue so, with it, exams, who's going to create them?
2: You know, teachers can create exams. Um, The idea is that we don't test kids just for the sake of testing and giving them a score. We test them to evaluate learning and to figure out the next step on their learning process. Exactly. Um, And so when we think about a test, the best person to design the test is the person teaching the students. Um, And to check and see if they're learning, If if they haven't grasped the concept, concept is to reteach it uh, and reteach it in a different way so that students can grasp it. The idea that we test in like this, I got you with these high stakes consequences, that is problematic. Uh, and that's what we need to put a halt to um and completely redesign and we need to put a, a emphasis on testing that leads to better learning outcomes that leads to high quality teaching um that's what we want to see tests used for and not for these high stakes consequences for really young children
0: I recommend uh, anyone who listens to this podcast to look up the Pearson pineapple scandal um, which is a ridiculous yes. well, question
1: I read that today
0: you 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 kind of I just,
3: just happen to have an- I would happen to be online and I saw people, uh, some kid posting on my blog about this ridiculous pineapple exam and my son happened to be in eighth grade at the time and I came home home and I asked him about this question, did you get a question about a pineapple and a hair and he said yeah and me and my best friend we argued all the way home about what was the right answer. And the really shocking thing about that whole experience is that I learned it had been given in like four or five other states before New York. And every single time, kids had been completely confused and flummoxed by these by these questions that made absolutely no sense. There was even a Facebook page about the pineapple and the hair, yep. the kids yep. posting about it. And yet it went on for years because Pearson kept on reusing it. And then when we exposed it, it got a lot more publicity because we're in New York, right, and that's the publicity capital. And they pulled it off the test and Pearson, but Pearson actually had the nerve to put out a press release saying they had never heard any complaints about it before. It was all over. I mean, you, you couldn't miss it. It was like on Facebook and everywhere. It was just ridiculous.
1: Well, they weren't listening. That's, that's how
3: unaccountable these testing companies are, that they have all these high stakes and supposedly accountability for the kids, and yet they keep on making the same mistakes and the same errors over and over. They've met, Pearson has made mistakes with our gifted tests. They have made mistakes with our state tests. They no longer do the state test, but since the pineapple thing, um, and that the, and the uh, specialized high school exam, which is a terrible exam, has never been independently vetted for either gender or racial bias. And in fact, there's tremendous evidence that it's biased against girls because girls do better on the state tests in New York and they get better grades. And they actually do better in the specialized high schools, but they do much worse on the specialized high school exam and get admitted at much lower rates.
0: Wow. So it's like possible it. that a positive outcome of the COVID pandemic is that these tests are going to be diminished? in, Hopefully. in, in their, Okay, all right. Jasmine, uh, this is another topic we've been talking about. and each one of these, we could explore in, in depth about the strides made by the Black Lives uh, Matter movement and about raising the awareness about white racism in this country. We are a racist country. I mean, it's, it's becoming so, so clear Um, That white racism is a key factor of our culture and our history and who we are and how we think. Does AQE call for a culturally responsive uh, education leading to an improved democracy of equal citizens? Is that part of the program that you're pushing for?
2: Absolutely, we wanna see culturally responsive and sustaining education across New York State. You know, one, the Black Lives Matter, uh, there's a Black Lives Matter in School Week of Action that has three simple demands. Um, One is to hire more teachers of color, uh, to implement a culturally responsive education uh, and to end the school to prison pipeline because we know uh, students of color are harsh, more harshly disciplined than their white peers. Um, it's a really simple platform. Teachers unions and other states have supported it. Schools you know, do a whole week of action around it. Uh, in New York City, for some reason, the New York City teachers union, the UFT, refuses to support that platform. Uh, They recently tweeted Black Lives Matter and we were like, oh, okay, I'm glad you acknowledge that now, Um, but can you take a step further and actually do more? Um, And so we want to make sure that our children matter in their schools, that they see themselves reflected in the curriculum and in the in the body of who all is in the the school with them. Um, It's important that you see people that look like you. Uh, I was really fortunate. I'm actually a product of the New York City public school system, from kindergarten to CUNY. I actually went to an elementary school that, that was a community school in Brooklyn, New York, where most of my teachers were Black women, from the principal to every teacher in the building, and it was great to have such positive affirmations throughout my early childhood and education experience. Kids, that should not be the exception, that should be the norm. Black history shouldn't be something that we only teach in February. It should be weaved in the curriculum and what we say is every subject and every hour of the day, we should be culturally responsive. Um, And that kids need to learn about the diverse cultures that make up New York. Um, And we need to celebrate that diversity in our curriculum, in the books we choose in our classroom, in the history lessons that we teach um, and how we tell those stories really matters um, and we actually need to also do some anti-racism and anti-bias training for educators who are in our classrooms who bring that to our children um, and so all of that needs to happen simultaneously in order to be build culturally responsive schools that really support children and where they feel reflected and we all know the research shows that when kids go, have studies when they see themselves reflected in books and in the classroom with the educators they do so much better Um, And so it's like, why not? Why aren't we doing this? If we know the benefits are so tremendous, why is it taking us so long to get there? Why is it taking us so long to build curriculums that are culturally responsive? Why is it taking us so long to buy the right books uh, that are not just simply by white authors? Um, from a Eurocentric background. Um, And so we really need to push uh, the city and the state to to adopt culturally responsive education as a way of being for our schools. um, And that makes sure our schools are truly reflective of the student populations that they serve.
0: And start building up our democracy to what it promised to be, which is uh, equal for everybody. I mean, we used to call it civics, but uh, this is a
2: a new civics. I mean, civics is definitely missing uh, from our, our classrooms. Kids do not know how to engage in the political atmosphere. Oftentimes they're learning this outside of the classroom. Um, but they need to know who their state representatives are, who their city representatives are, how the different levels of government work. It's absolutely important to our democracy, that kids understand voting and how to vote. Um, and so part of the curriculum redesign is also how kids can be civically engaged um, and be drivers of this democracy right. uh, all along and can push for ways to make this democracy better.
0: And how the media works too.
2: Absolutely. So that's that's a so question everything. I think that's absolutely important is that our kids learn how to question what's being told to them and question things appropriately. And that like, just because someone says it doesn't make it a fact (laughs) and they have the right to question it. Right. Should school
1: safety agents be separated from police control? Should school principals be in charge of SSA?
2: We want cops out of our schools. I I was listening to Lainey talk earlier about like the idea that we don't have one nurse in every school building. And that's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous because if you look at the NYPD in schools, It is one of the largest police forces in the country. It is bigger than the entire uh, Las Vegas Police Department. It is bigger than the city of Dallas Police Department. It is bigger than the city of Boston's Police Department. So we have more police in our schools than patrolling entire cities, yet we don't have a nurse in every building. That is absolutely ridiculous. We do not need cops in our schools. Safety does not mean police. Uh, And like safety in this time means nurses in our school buildings. Safety means having access to counselors and grief counselors and support staff. Um, safety means having a room, like a sensory room, where kids can go to if they're having a tantrum. When a five-year-old's having a tantrum, do not call the police on them. Right? That's not what they need. Uh, they're not trained to deal with five-year-olds and their tantrums. Um, and oftentimes, what we're sold is that well, the police will act as counselors. The police will act as you know other things. It's like no. If you want counselors, hire counselors. Because when you hire when you hire cops, you get cops. Um, and we do not want cops in schools, and so I think one, we don't want this NYPD presence in our school buildings, especially as large it is, as it is. But it's simply not enough to just take those uniform officers from NYPD and put them in a DOE, and so they're going to wear polo instead of a police uniform and do the same role, and think that that's okay. Like that is not enough. What we're saying is that huge budget of four hundred million that is spent on police needs to be reallocated to other resources in our schools like the counselors, like the nurses, and the other support staff that we need for kids to feel safe and encouraged, and it's not police officers. Um, and so we wanna build police-free schools as much as possible and give kids the chance to be kids. And, and this idea is not unique and, and new, it exists. White, wealthy kids go to schools without police officers every single day. Uh, and it's just black and brown children who are forced to go to schools that are over police uh, that are forced to go to schools with metal detectors, Um, and people yelling at them every morning. Um, And so we want to dismantle all of those things and take them out of our schools and make sure they're welcoming places for children to learn.
0: Lainey spoke with Matt Broom, the New York City Principal Superintendent of District 27, about this um, issue of the SSA. And I was so surprised to learn that these uh, school safety officers are trained by the police department. They're not under the principals. They're under the police department.
3: One of the things that Matt said, and something that happened a few years ago, and I don't know that it's as bad as it used to be, but that um, principals would get in fights with their safety agents, because the safety agents would, would call the police and start to arrest the kids, and then the, the principal, in one case, interceded for the kid, and the, they actually arrested the principal and hauled him off to the police station, too. Right. So it was like, you're def- trying to, principals are, in some cases are trying to defend their own kids, their own students from the school safety agents and from the police. And that just is totally untenable. And Matt told talked about, you know, how sometimes there was a fight across the street and he had to cross the street to try to do something about the fight, but the school safety agent had to get permission first from the local precinct to go across the street to help Matt up, out. And that's just seemed ridiculous. So there's a whole chain of command issue where principals often feel very frustrated that they can't use the school safety agents to really protect the safety of the staff and protect the safety of the kids because the police are you know are, aren't around, aren't aren't giving the right orders or aren't you know um, listening to what they're saying needs to happen within the school.
1: We want to thank Lainey Hameson, Executive Director of Class Size Matters and Jasmine Gripper, Executive Director of Alliance for Quality Education, for joining us today on Zoom and for the work they are doing for our students in need. Thanks Thanks a lot, you guys. Bye, Jasmine. Bye, Lainey. And Alan and I want to thank Alina Larson for producing this BCR episode, and thanks to Wade Ripka's Eastern Blockheads Band for providing our theme music.
0: This is Barcrow Radio. Remember, the best conversations happen at your neighborhood bar, and now on Zoom... Tell us what you think of our programming at bar4radio at gmail.com.